Good day, radio listeners. Welcome to this edition of the Pure Sex Radio Broadcast. I'm glad that you're here. My name is Jonathan, and uh, this is going to be a little bit of a special bonus episode. Um, I had done a, a, a session back in October in Atlanta with a group of men, and this is sort of a Q&A time, and they were asking wonderful questions about all kinds of things from dealing with the issue of masturbation, about how do you talk to your kids, and all other kinds of um, just questions that come up when we're talking about the issue of sexual integrity and sexual brokenness in our culture. And so I just want to share with you um, some of this Q&A session in hopes it will help answer some of your questions as well. And before we dive into that, I just want to remind you that we're a listener-supported broadcast, and I just want to say thank you. Thank you to so many of you who have been generous and faithful in helping us stay on the airwaves and keep the podcast coming and be able to continue to expand our reach through various distributors. And just we're reaching thousands of people each and every week all around the globe in over 100 countries. And so I thank you for that. And um, we continue to need support in order to be able to continue to do what we're doing and reach more people with this good news of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ and what that means to us as sexually broken people. So if you'd like to learn about the ways that you can give and come alongside of us, just go to puresexradio.com and click on the donate button. And I hope this session blesses you. Take care. So I want to open it up now for some questions. We've already had a few questions come in. Let me open this up here, and I'm going to have uh, Jeff here helping me out. He's got a microphone. If anybody wants to ask a question, just raise your hand, and we will get those to you, or he's going to be going through these texts, or you can text them to that uh, number. But um, questions. All right, we have a question here. Um, what does it look like? And I guess, let me real quick, how many dads to daughters are in the room? Dads of A daughter, lot. Yeah. Great. Nice. Wow. So the question is, what does it look like for a dad to have a healthy role in shaping his daughter's sexuality? And then maybe after that, you could address too, does it look different for a son? Yeah, that's a great question. So I have two daughters and a son in the middle, and they're all teenagers, all in high school, senior, junior, freshman. So yes, we're in that tunnel of chaos with all of that. But um so the way I've approached this and the way I try to encourage men is when you're thinking about daughters, the, 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 the basic difference that I say in terms of a dad to a daughter versus dad to a son is that in many cases, dad to a daughter, it's less about your instructing her or modeling for her how to be a woman than it is for showing her what a real man looks like. And when it comes to a son, it's a little bit different. I think we have a, a greater responsibility to in actually instructing and role modeling for him what it looks like to be a man. And so that's kind of the fundamental differences there. The way this has played out in my, my life with my wife is that when it comes to issues of uh, detail and biology, hey, my wife's taken that with the girls. And she's she's done all of that kind of training in that area in terms of just dealing with body and changes and those kind of things. I do that with my son. So that kind of helps us have really specific lanes that we know what we're trying to do in terms of educating our sons and daughters about penises and vaginas and all those kinds of things and what sex actually is mechanically and, and all of that. Now, when it comes to unpacking the word of God, as Julie was stating it regarding it being a metaphor 
a holy metaphor of covenant love, guess what? Whole family's all together on that. There's no separation of girls from boys whenever we're talking about the greater, grander design and picture of what God has made marriage and and sex to be. So I do think, uh, one of the other things that I do with my kids that I think is really important is I have intentional one-on-one time with all of my kids separately from each other. And dads, um, listen, I get it. I get how busy life can be. Here's something that, that really struck me when my kids were turning around eight or nine years old. I was realizing, I could see on the horizon, hey, I know what's coming in terms of launch into adulthood. And how am I going to be intentional about really training them up in the way that they should go? And it dawned on me one day that there's only, there's only one way, in my life anyway, that something is certain to get done and if it's on my calendar. And I realized, I looked on my calendar one day, and I realized I don't have Haley, Ethan, or Megan, those are my kids, on my calendar. I also realized I didn't have my wife on my calendar. They now exist in my calendar. Scheduled regular times, because it's like, if that's not, for me, that was the thing that revealed where the intentions of my heart actually go in terms of what am I actually going to do. And so I challenge you men, if you're thinking that you're going to sort of organically train your kids up in the way that they should go without very specific intentionality, then you're probably fooling yourself. So I would say, guys, get intentional about one-on-one time with your kids separate from from the others so that they can, because each of them has a unique personality. Therefore, each of them is going to have a unique relationship with you. And the more you can invest in that, I think it goes a long way. A few of us have asked questions about the brokenness concept that you talked about this morning. Um, One here says, I struggle with the quote-unquote true brokenness feeling, feeling like I'm not broken enough. Is there a brokenness threshold? And then maybe a follow-up to that of how do we choose it before it's something that's brought on us by circumstances because we didn't choose it? Right. That's a great question. So the brokenness threshold, I've never heard that before. That's interesting. Um, I can't say, you know, you, I wish I could give you a, a wheel with colors on it that tells you exactly this is, this is the point of brokenness that's the tipping point. But every single one of us is different in terms of our history, our experiences, our woundedness, all of that, right? I think one, for me, um, I'll just, that's the only place I can come from is really kind of where I came from in terms of what really established for me that I'm in the right frame of mind regarding brokenness now. And that was when I realized it's no longer about self-protection. See, because I think as long as I was continuing to try to say, okay, listen, I'll, I'll confess this far, or I'll go this far, or I'll say this much, or I'll let you in this far, there was still always a part that was like, but I gotta keep a little bit of me propped up. I gotta keep a little of me of me protected. I gotta, so that was somewhat of a gauge for me internally of like, how am I sharing this with somebody else? Am I really being honest or am I still trying to self-protect in some way? And that's, uh, and I realized I was doing the same thing, believe it or not, with God, which is sort of foolish, right? Is there anything that God can't know about you or can't see? But then God really did an amazing thing that showed me 
really what this can look like from our heart perspective in terms of intimacy with God and recognizing when you have that quote-unquote right kind of brokenness. There's a passage in Revelation 3 where, where uh, Jesus is basically kind of giving his, um, his checkup to these seven churches. And the one church, he says, let me tell you something. You've, you've left your first love. And then he says to this one church, he says, but, but I stand at the door and knock. And anyone who comes and lets me in, I'll come in and dine with you and you with me. You know what, when I was a kid, I thought that was about conversion. Jesus is talking to saved people. He's actually talking to people in the church, saved people who have closed the door of their heart. This is a passage about intimacy. So what I realized too in my relationship with God as it pertains to brokenness, are there places within me, even though I know intellectually and theologically God can see behind whatever wall I put up, I may still have put it up. And I may still be operating from a mindset that says, I don't want to let you in there. And God is actually a perfect gentleman. He will not kick that door down. But he will stand at the door and knock. And so what I would invite you to do in terms of kind of assessing that in yourself is try to find some quiet time with God this week where you're getting as serious as you possibly can before him and say, God, Will you show me where you are knocking? And that will begin to indicate to you where you've closed yourself off. And that's where the brokenness can come because you can repent of that. You can begin to say, God, I want to let you in. Because he says, this is the great news about that passage, is he doesn't say if you open the door, he might come in and dine with you. He says, listen, you open that door, I'm in. I will come. It's a promise. But the door has to be opened by you. And that's a, so that was one of the things that really indicated to me some other areas in which it was like, I don't really want to let God go there. Uh, you know, I don't want to let him go there when, it, when I start thinking about my fears, my anxieties, my depression. I don't want to let him go there. And that was God showing me, you need brokenness there. Uh, what was the second half of the question on brokenness? Just... The choosing it versus having it. Oh, yeah, on. yeah. The idea of getting out ahead of it <laughs> instead of waiting till your circumstances demand it, right? And by the way, even if circumstances demand it, you can still have false motives for quote-unquote brokenness. You know what I mean? Because I think I've see, we see this in guys all the time. They're broken because their wife left them. And really their motive is, I want to get my wife back. And so we have to be careful, too, of even when circumstances get to a place where it feels like it's dictating, it's mandating that we be broken, that we still evaluate, am I truly broken because I'm actually like David, broken over my sin against God and not because of my circumstance being in trouble. But in terms of getting out ahead of that, I think this idea of asking God where he's knocking is a huge way to do that because you're taking initiative to say, God, I actually know in some way that my heart is still closed off to you. And here's the good news, guys. God is not, um, God doesn't abandon us. He promises to never leave us and never forsake us. What that means is that he will keep knocking. I used to think that faithfulness, the faithfulness of God, meant that he just never was going to leave me. In other words, wherever I go, he's just never going to leave. And that's true. I came to also realize 
that the faithfulness of God also means that he will keep giving me opportunities to come out into the light. See, when you are about to click on that mouse button to go to that porn site and the phone rings, you think that's an interruption. When, when you are about to do fill in the blank with whatever it is that's going to go towards some kind of sinful sexual acting out and a bird starts squawking outside your door, you think that's just an annoying noise. I believe those are all the kinds of ways in which God says, I'm faithful, I'm actually right here, I see exactly what you're about to do, and I'm giving you an opportunity to step into the light. He is faithful in that way too. So what I'm saying in that regard, in terms of getting out ahead of this idea of brokenness, is start to become more aware of the whispers of God in your life and in your surroundings. Start listening to the birds Start answering your phone. <laughs> Start doing some of those things that before they seem like annoyances or that they're getting in the way of your will when in fact it could be God is actually saying, I'm trying to invite you back out into a wide open space of being in the light rather than going further into the dark. So two-part question. The first part, um, this morning we talked about the thought that comes in, not necessarily sinful, but do we keep it there? And so the question is, at what point do our thoughts turn into lust? Yeah. This is probably a top five question that we get in terms of like, man, where's that line like in the mind? And some guys, listen, if you're an engineer, this is going to be hard for you, okay? Because you want to have like a specific, like what degree, what angle, and all this kind of stuff. And so you're probably going to struggle more than those of us who are more artistic or something. But um, here's the way I, I use the answer to that is I think about it in terms of the definition of fantasy or even just imagination. God is a creator, right? So when we were made, since we are made in his image, we are given creative capabilities. And so much of this is represented in our minds. We have the ability to imagine incredible things. Now being made in God's image, when he gave us that creative ability, everything in creation, everything in our imaginations is ultimately meant to point us and our attention onto God. The way I like to think of it is all beauty is meant to draw us toward God. That's why everything about sexual sin and pornography is a distortion of God's design because it wants to draw us away from actually looking at God and then actually looking at man, looking at ourselves and, and all of that. So if you can at least start to establish that all beauty is intended to point me to God, it might start to reframe even what temptation looks like to you. Things that before you say, man, I see that, and you acknowledge it as temptation, but usually then you want to start saying, how can I get in the shadows? How can I get in the dark? I want to make this about me. Instead, we can say, listen, all beauty is meant to point me towards God. So if I recognize that, I believe that, what am I going to do in that moment then when I see beauty that feels tempting to me? Then I have to redirect. This is the way I think of it. Where we cross the line in our minds is when we take our God-given imagination, but we use it and direct it towards self-centered pleasure. Guys, the fact that you see beauty, the fact that you are tempted is not sin. Jesus was tempted. It says he was tempted in every way, just like we are. We have a savior that can actually identify with those feelings that all of us have had this week of temptation, whatever it may be, whether it's lust, greed, envy, whatever it might be. Jesus can actually identify with that. So the fact that he knows what that feels like means that that feeling isn't sin. 
And some men have gotten so much guilt and shame associated where they've taken those feelings into sin that then they just sort of cover and throw a blanket over the feelings themselves and say that it's all sin. So we have to start to recognize that to be tempted is not sin. What we have to do, though, is recognize what's going on in our minds. When temptation comes in, we have to say, which direction am I going to point this? Am I going to take that temptation and then to begin use all the faculties that God has given me in order to now direct that towards myself and my own pleasures? Or am I going to take all this imagination that God has given me and use it to direct that moment towards him? And here's one little phrase that I use. Um, there's, I'll, I'll give you several little tricks that have helped me along the way. Uh, one is let beauty pass. So the idea is, I mean, like I'll be walking through a grocery store or something and boom, there's a gorgeous woman and I have just that twinge. There's two things. There's the wow response and then there's the temptation. And uh, both of which have not crossed into sin, but I'll feel that. And I'll just say, sometimes in my own head, sometimes out loud, quietly, let beauty pass. And then I just walk on because it's like, I have a, I have a decision in that moment. Which direction am I going to focus my mind? The other one that's been helpful is when it comes to temptation, temptation is always seeking to get you to go into an area that has mystery to it. It's always seeking to get you to go behind a wall, right? That's what temptation is. It's saying, come over here, come into this, do these things over here. And it's, it's part of our human nature. My wife and kids, some years, maybe about seven or eight years ago, we were in Branson, Missouri, and we were on a ministry trip. I got to take them with me. And uh, one day we got a day off, and we were going to Silver Dollar City, which is a theme park in Branson, Missouri. Well, they had a whole area of the theme park that they were doing construction on. So they had all these like eight-foot-tall um, wood fences up around it. And about every 20 feet, they had, a, they had a hole in the fence about three feet high, about every 20 feet, and above the hole it says, don't look here. And there's a line of like 20 kids that are lined up in there, right? That's kind of what temptation is like. It's saying, look behind this wall, right? That's, the, that's what Paul, Paul was talking about when he says, that's, the, that's what sin does. Sin, I didn't know what covetousness was until the law said, don't covet. And then I just want to do everything covetousness. So what I'm saying about that is that because temptation is set up that way of trying to lure you into something that has an element of mystery, you need to go behind this wall. One phrase that I like to use whenever I'm feeling tempted is, I don't need to know that. It's so simple. You'd be amazed though, if you can just say that out loud, you might be in your car, you might be going throughout your day, and whatever temptation is trying to get you to crawl over that wall or to look through that hole or whatever, you just say, I don't need to know that. I have found such a sense of peace in my life realizing, when I finally came to realize Everything about temptation is trying to get me to step into something that has an appeal of mystery, but will take me out of this pure space of peace and joy and fulfillment. It's trying to get me to go into places that are not like that. So just saying, I don't need to know that has been huge. The next question, I believe it relates to masturbation, asks, is it okay to think of you and your wife having sex to the point of an orgasm? Yeah, so this is, another, this is another top five question we get about masturbation. So let me address masturbation first and address, then address the issue of masturbating with images of your spouse. So there's lots of different um, thoughts and, and ideas on the issue of masturbation. And, 
you know, because there is no, there, there's nowhere in Scripture that explicitly addresses it as a sin, that's why there's so much confusion over it. It's just like, hey, we just don't know because there's, God doesn't say anywhere in his word, masturbation is a sin in the, any kind of explicit way like that. So then the struggle that we had or the struggle that I have is when I started my recovery, I thought, man, what do I do with this issue of masturbation? Because it's a big deal. I mean, I've heard it said that nine out of 10 men have done it and one of them's lying. So it's like, what do we do about this issue of masturbation? So I really did study the scriptures. I went through the Bible twice, front to back, looking for the answer to this question of masturbation. Of course, I found out there's not a single verse or passage that's specific to that issue. But as we've been learning here today, from cover to cover in the Bible, God is very willing to talk about sex and sexuality in our bodies. So it's not as if God ignores our being, our bodies, and our sexuality. So I started learning some things that you might call some principles related to this issue of masturbation. And probably the most profound principle was the one that we just find right in the book of Genesis in the creation story. When we see that God, when it says in Genesis 1 that God made man in his own image, male and female, he created them, that's giving us the, the overview of the creation of man. But when you go into Genesis chapter 2, we actually get the story of like, okay, how did that actually happen? And we realize that man and woman were not created simultaneously. We actually see that God created man first and then did some interesting things before he actually brought woman onto the scene. Because when he made man, he gave Adam two jobs before he gave him a wife. And if you're single, that's a good order to get things in. Get a job before you get a wife, okay? That's always a good, good way to do that. I mean, it's biblical, right? Get a job before you get a wife. So anyway, you know, he had two jobs. Take care of the garden and name the animals. And after he named all the animals, that is when God said, looking at this single, alone man, it's not good for man to be alone. That is rich in terms of theology throughout the entire scriptures. Because did you know God actually could not have made man in his own image if there was only one? Because although God is one, he is three. He is a community unto himself. So for us to be made in his image required multiplication, required more than just a single individual. But when God brought Eve along, that's where the complementary part came in. I mean, I'm sure Adam, as he's naming all these animals, is seeing complementarianism all over the place with all these various species, and yet there's nothing that looks like him out there. So God brings Eve. But here's the thing. When God looked at Adam and said, it's not good for man to be alone, I am of the opinion and belief that Adam was a fully formed man in that point in time. In other words, I don't think he got a penis slapped on after Eve was created. I think he was a fully formed man. So God is looking at this fully formed sexual man and saying it's not good for you to be alone. I think there's a commentary to that about how God views sex. Is that it is meant to be relational. The design of sex is meant to be relational. You could define masturbation as alone sex. So I think there's a, there's a fundamental difference in terms of how we engage these two areas when we think about masturbation versus sexual intimacy with a spouse. 
is that there's a paradigm difference there. One is typically focusing on me. The other is actually meant to focus on the other person. Now, I'm not saying that there, there can't be what we call intercourse masturbation, where basically you're taking that same paradigm of it's all about me and actually applying it into the sexual relationship with your wife. But the design of marriage by God is this is meant to be something where it's mutually giving and mutually satisfying. As it pertains to this issue of, uh, of fantasizing over your wife, we get this question a lot living in San Antonio because it's a military town. Lots of military guys. And so you got deployments. You got guys that are, you know, gone 6, 12, 18 months sometimes on a deployment. And that is, you want to talk about a high-stress situation to be in away from their wife or husband because there's women that go on deployment too. And this question of masturbation comes up over and over again. And I will just say this. Over the years, I've gotten much more gracious in my response to those questions. Because here's the thing. I want to point these men to scripture and say in the same way that I had to go on a journey of discovering where God was taking my heart related to this issue. I invite you to go on that journey too, because a lot of times what I discovered is God not only exposed all of the fallacies of my thinking in my masturbation history, God also showed me all the fallacies of my thinking and actually being sexually intimate with my wife. There was plenty of selfishness going on in that regard too. So it wasn't just about the act that was going on. It was about what's going on in my heart. Now, that being said, I want to say a couple more things about this issue of masturbating to fantasies of your wife or those kind of things. Here's the difficulty that we have whenever we go into fantasy. Fantasy of any kind is not real. That is the definition of fantasy. (laughs) It's not real. So here's the thing that I challenge men in when it comes to this idea of what if I just masturbate to images of my wife is, well, it may be images of your wife, but it's actually not her. Because here's what typically happens. If we have kind of a self-motivation is the image I'm creating of my wife in my mind might not reflect anything of who she really is. In other words, what I might be having her do in my mind is nothing she would actually ever do in reality. Therefore, I think that's a problem because now I've, again, made it all about me. So I just want to, those are some things I would encourage you to explore on your own in terms of just being able to figure out, hey, where's my heart? What am I doing? And this, and not even just about the masturbation, I encourage you to explore motives of your heart, even if you're being sexual with your wife in terms of intercourse, because there's plenty of selfishness and other kinds of wrong thoughts and fantasies that can be going on there that are just as dishonoring to God's design as if you're going over here looking at porn or, or just masturbating. Oh, yeah. Great question. So, yeah, dealing with my son. So, uh, my son's 16 now. Um, and when he, when he was little, I mean, everything about... We've had open, ongoing conversations with our kids about their bodies from the time they were born. Because we, when, when my wife and I got back together was when we started having kids. So we'd come out of all of this brokenness and all of this stuff, and we were like, okay, first, number one, we are not out to win any parenting awards. We know we're going to fail plenty of times, so, so let's just be really open. The other thing is we are not going to set up a home where there are any topics that could be seen as you can't talk about that. So it's like everything is open for discussion. Um, I often think, man, if somebody ever visited our house during dinner or something, they'd be thinking, what is wrong with this family? They talk about that? Yes, we talk about all kinds of stuff. So 
from the beginning, we wanted to make sure that when we talk about body and nakedness and all those kind of things, we're real open about it. When my son turned about nine or 10, that's when I started having more intentional conversations to him about what's coming up, body changes, desires. And of course, at that time, he's just looking at me blankly like, you're out of your mind, dad. This stuff is never going to happen. What are you talking about? Girls? Uh, what are that? Yeah, so anyway, he was not too keen on that. But then when he turned 13, uh, on his 13th birthday, I basically, he went, I got him a William Wallace sword, knighted him, and I said, you're no longer a boy, you're a man in training. So that spoke, spoke a whole lot of identity into him in terms of just being able to start setting him up for manhood. And that's when we really started having all these very intentional conversations. I mean, he knew about what pornography and those kind of things were before that. But in terms of really starting to get way more intentional about masturbation, desires, all those kinds of things. And uh, what has helped the most about that is what I actually mentioned earlier this morning. And that is leading with your own story. I challenge every man of any, of any sons is that probably any, somewhere between the ages of 10 to 13, you need to tell your son about the first time you saw pornography. And how you responded to that. And then as he goes through each of those years, begin to just unpack your story with him. Uh, that goes along. I mean, most dads freak out when we tell them that. No, no, I want my son to have an image of me, of what it looks like to you know, be all together and be strong. And it's like, okay, I mean, you can screw up your kid how you want to, but this is how I'm screwing up my kid, okay? So I tend to think I'd rather be out front of that and just saying, let me just be honest with you. The things you're struggling with, I actually know what it's like. Even though there were no cell phones when I was in high school, even though that, you know, it's like the culture may look different around us, but what you are dealing with, I know exactly what that feels like. And I've, so I've, I've shared with my son the first time I saw pornography, shared with him the first time I masturbated. Uh, we talk about masturbation and the struggle, and I've been very, we're real open about that. So the other thing that I set my kid up for was I told him from the very beginning you will never be in trouble for confessing any kind of sin struggle with me, ever. Because I think there's a perception among kids that if I were to cross a line or even struggle with things, that in our Christian faith we know are clearly sin, then I'm probably going to get in trouble if I tell mom or dad about that, right? Instead of saying, but what, is the, what did we just read what the Bible said? There is forgiveness waiting for those who confess where? In community, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us. So son, bring that to me. You're never going to get in trouble. In fact, you'll get forgiveness when you come. So I think setting him up for that too. And then also just trying to help him think about this idea of, of the greater context of what sexuality is all about. So that when he kind of gets that tunnel vision drive towards, I can't help but think about wanting to masturbate right now. He's got some kind of context to be able to put that into that says, okay, this isn't all there is. Because I think when we're teenagers, it's very easy to think that whatever is directly in front of us in our minds or in our lives, whatever, that's the only thing that matters. And so being able to continue to bring it back to that larger context helps. And then I think just having those intentional one-on-one -on -one times of regular conversations. And any of, any of you guys that have kids that are already grown, especially, well, sons or daughters, you know this. You can tell your kids till you're blue in the face, you can share anything with me. Yeah, whatever. And here's the thing. They might say, great, dad, I think that's awesome. They will never share anything with you. So you have to be thinking about, I have to be the one to constantly initiate these kind of conversations. 
But here's the key, I think, is when you're having this one-on-one time with your kids, especially with your sons, don't make those one-on-one times only about purity. Like only about, so how are you doing with your eyes? Because then they're going to start thinking, manhood means I'm one-dimensional, I'm, I'm purely and only a sexual being. That I don't actually have ideas and creativity and, you know what I mean? So we have to be careful about also then making those times where then they're just going to start being in a state of panic and fear about those conversations. Good question. That's a, that's a real common thing. Here's, uh, I would say that's probably more of our own fear than it is what would actually happen. And the reason I'm saying that is because if we're willing to keep having ongoing open dialogue and open conversations with our kids, then, then hey, we can, we can recover from that. If a kid goes, that was too much, Dad, I don't think I can. Okay, we'll just keep talking. We'll keep talking. No big deal. If, if we're thinking in terms of I've got to try to land a single talk that is going to nail it all, then yes, we can probably say we're probably going to introduce too much and then we never have another conversation after that. That's probably going to be a problem. But if we are, are seeking to have an ongoing dialogue with our son, I think keep, keep the topics open. I do think there's a, there's a responsive and a uh, preparatory nature to this. We respond to whatever issues they're dealing with right now that maybe we couldn't foresee or just things that come up at school or with friends or whatever. We respond to those issues. Hey, I had a friend show me something today. Okay, let's talk about that. But then also we try to prepare them by saying, okay, if my son's 10, then we got to start talking about body changes and that things are going to be happening. And what does that mean? How does that fit into like what Julie was talking about of why do we all of a sudden have a 600% increase in testosterone during the adolescent years and all of a sudden think that everything is a sexual object? Like, why is that? And we can put it into that context of that overall, this is the drive toward covenant love. God did not make you to live as an isolated guy on your own. He made you to actually pursue relationship. So does that make sense? So there's both the, you got to respond to it prepare, but then I don't, I, I personally don't think you can overtalk this subject with your kids, you know, especially if you've got that ongoing foundation of a relationship. This is where that humility piece comes in a lot. It's just going, God, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm going to try my best. I'm going to try to be a good steward with these kids, but you have to have them because, I mean, I could probably screw them up. <laughs> and I think if we have that humility, I think we're going to be just fine. So with all these questions, do you have any of these resources like a blog or in any of your books or do you have any that you recommend that kind of capture a lot of these principles that you're talking about? Yeah, great question. So our ministry is kind of broken down into into two major elements. We kind of have what we call our direct care ministry items and then we have sort of our global and, and awareness and education piece. And so kind of what's part of that awareness and education piece is we have our, our pure community um, resource platform. And there's all kinds of resources on there, books, uh, blogs, podcasts, you know, intensives, seminars, all kinds of stuff that you can find there. And so it's just at purecommunity.org. And uh, we also have an online training platform called Pure Life Academy that has resources both for men um, who are struggling. We've got our 40 Days of Purity online course, but we also just launched our Parenting for Purity course. And it's kind of a comprehensive bundle to help parents mainly with this idea of how do we have ongoing dialogue. So in other words, it's not about saying, 
let's try to attack every single potential problem that could happen and address each one of those individually. It's more of like, no, no, how do we create an environment that is conducive for teaching our kids how to walk in the design that God has created? And I will tell you this, just the way our director of training works, he's the one that kind of put this, this parenting program together, is it's going to challenge your butt off. Because I think a lot of times as parents, especially, we're looking for something like, what can I deliver to my kid? <laughs> and it's actually like, no, no, no. What are you going, how are you going to engage your child? And how are you going to then actually model for them all these principles and things that you want to instill in them? So you cannot, uh, any of you that have kids over the age of five, you already know they're smarter than you are anyway. In terms of being able to tell when you're just kind of blowing smoke, like if you say, they can tell when it's, oh, this is one of those moments where dad is telling me to do what he says, not what he does, <laughs> right? So let's just kind of erase all of that and say, okay, we know this is going to be about our own integrity as well as it is about what we're trying to instill in our kids. Another question, what are some practical steps, advice, or direction to give to a Christian young man if he confides in you that he's been viewing pornography? Yeah, so the first thing I ever say to anybody who is willing to go to that level of courage to confess is thank you. Thank you. That was bold. And I'll actually just call it out. That was courageous. And that's exactly the kind of characteristic that God wants to grow in you. So just being able to affirm that that decision to actually share that they're struggling with pornography was the right decision. And although it feels scary and everything, let's leverage that. The other thing I would say is I would want to invite that person, if they're willing, to let's unpack a little bit more of the story. Now, I, I'm not saying that you have to be a counselor or that you have to start thinking that you're going to be the one to provide all of the direct care to that person, but I think being safe enough for them to know that they could share kind of the fullness of their story with you goes a long way for them then maybe taking that next step to other kinds of care that could help them with resources and those kind of things. So rather than saying, hey, thanks for telling me that, um, go over there, right? You know, instead of doing that, where they feel like, okay, I just opened up, this was very hard for me, even for me to just get that far to say, I kind of struggle with pornography, and now I'm sort of being pushed off. Let them unpack more of the story so they feel a sense of trust. Because they obviously had to have a sense, some level of trust to be able to share that with you. And if you can expand that trust a little bit more, then you can become an advocate for their next step. Here's probably, even before all of that, you want to thank them, that kind of stuff. I think one of the most important things in that initial conversation, if somebody is willing to share with you that they are struggling in that area is to identify with their struggle. And don't do it like this. Yeah, I used to struggle with that. Don't make your problems historical as if you didn't face any temptation today or even in the last 24 hours. No, no, maybe you haven't looked at porn in a long, long, long time. But that doesn't mean you can't still identify with a man in terms of the struggle that it is to maintain purity with your eyes and those kind of things. That identification can go a long way because, again, it's going to build trust. Because it's like, this is a guy who actually gets it. This isn't something that, and especially if you give somebody a deer in the headlights look like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Then I would actually tell the person that is confessing to you, run, run away. That's not a safe person to invest in. Because if he's a guy that won't even confess that he understands what that feels like, he is so out of touch or he's so guarded or he's such an image builder, he's not a safe person to connect with. Did you have a question? Well, let me, 
let me try to share with you something that's, that might feel a little bit like a sideways answer, but I, but I hope it kind of connects because uh, I, I usually don't try to get too far in any kind of specific where, hey, like, well, this is what you can do and this is how you can engage that and all kind of stuff. Because then that can, you know, I believe that the Bible says, let the marriage bed be undefiled in the sense that there's a freedom there that is between those two individuals to explore with all shamelessness. There's no shame in, in that. But there are these kind of four key elements that I often say when it comes to building real intimacy, what are the keys to just the sexual relationship in, in a marriage? And the first is I think that the behavior has to be uh, moral. In other words, it has to be something that would be uh, not disapproved by God's word. So obviously pornography in the bedroom, nope, that doesn't, that doesn't fly in terms of of what God says. The second thing is the behavior mutually agreeable. So in other words, if one partner wants something and the other one doesn't, guess what? To force that, that also doesn't jive with what intimacy is really about. The idea of really, um, at least not what we're talking about when we talk about sexual intimacy, not purely as a physical act, but as the connection of this oneness. The third thing is, is the behavior mutually pleasurable. I actually believe God made sex to feel good. <laughs> I, and the thing is, is we've heard from some of the ladies, right? That that's not always the experience they've had. And if you think about just where our culture is and our history and the Me Too thing and how much abuse and just violence has been committed against women sexually and physically, you can imagine then why there's such a fear component a lot of times regarding sex itself, even with a husband who might love her. And so I think if there is pain in sex, that's something that needs to be worked through and figured out. Possibly there's medication, doctors, things like that. So it needs to be mutually pleasurable. And then the final thing is, is it producing oneness? See, I thought, I think like many guys, you know, who, who grew up with that purity narrative that, hey, once you get married and you are able to have sex, let's keep it the physical, right? Once you're able to have sex, that's what oneness must mean. But man, as you begin to unpack the scriptures and see that idea of yada, to know deeply, the sexual piece is actually an important but small part of the overall intimacy that is being sought. So then I think that gives a lot of room for exploration. So if those four things, I mean, those are just kind of a litmus test type of things like, hey, okay, is this something that's not disapproved by God, specifically in his word? Is this something that we both agree to? Do we both find it pleasurable? And is it actually building the deepness of our oneness? I think if all four of those things are in place, you have an unlimited amount of freedom to explore and enjoy what that looks like. And so I think that's a good way to maybe kind of measure what, move further into what the intimacy aspect is rather than just let's have quote unquote pure sex. Does that make sense? Another question, what resources do you recommend for a man who's stuck in porn addiction? Okay, so the... The key things to that is, uh, I mean, community is necessary. So whether that be with a counselor or a support group, I mean, it's so essential to get connected with other men. There's no way you can do this to the degree that God wants you to do this in isolation and disconnection. God did not design us to be isolated. 
I mean, at the very beginning, he says, not good for man to be alone. I think there was the specific context of that being in terms of bringing Eve and this idea of marriage and that covenant there. But I think it's also in a larger context that we see all throughout the rest of Scripture in terms of God did not call uh, an individual necessarily. He called a people, right? Because even when he called Abraham out, what did he say? I will make a great nation of you. He's always been about community and people. So you need to be plugged into community. A lot of times a support group is really good for that. Uh, I know there's some communities here in the local area that could really help you with that. Uh, Hope Quest and some of the others can help you get connected with, with those kind of things. True North, they can help you with that. The other thing too is just, um, I think it's good to get a better understanding of what God's design and purpose is. Um, I highly recommend Julie's book, Rethinking Sexuality, in that front of just saying, okay, what is this overall view? And what I, what I trust will happen is when you start to go through that, you will see where the deficiency is in the pursuit of pornography. So rather than trying to focus on the porn and saying, how do I get porn out of my life? When you start focusing on what you're actually made for, boy, it really starts pointing out why that's such a lesser, deficient, unsatisfying route. It's kind of like when, uh, when federal agents are trained to spot counterfeit currency, money, they never look at a counterfeit. They only look at a true, real bill, and they know it so well that they can spot a counterfeit immediately. I think that's part of what the healing journey looks like too, is we want to know the truth so well that man, when those temptations fly across, we can spot the counterfeit in a heartbeat and go, that's not real. That's not who I am. That's not what I'm called to be. And so it just takes a process there. So community is really essential. And part of that community is the accountability. But here's the, here's the way I want you to reframe the idea of accountability. We often think of accountability in these terms, like, oh yeah, that's where I kind of, I go with, go meet a guy that seems a little bit more mature than I am, and we go meet on a Thursday for lunch, and I basically tell him, here's how I've been stupid this last week, and he says, well, great, don't do that anymore. And you're like, thanks, I'll be back for some more accountability next week, right? A lot of times it's very one way, it's usually only focused on this area of our lives as men, and this is why most men that I meet with say, I had an accountability partner. It's historical, because that always fizzles out. If we recognize what God's call is to us, if you look in the New Testament, there's all these one another passages. We're to bear one another's burdens, confess our sins to one another, love one another, pray for one another, uh, all these kinds of things. That looks a whole lot like friendship to me in all areas of our lives. And so if we can begin to learn what it means to actually have real friends, that this is an integrated part of that friendship Instead of, like I said before, we throw this sexuality part over into the corner and say, I want to have discipleship without ever having to deal with my sexuality. What we need to do now is say, no, we need to pull that back in and say accountability looks like building a friendship that is going to talk about these issues. And that's where I think you can start to see some real, real healing moving forward. We can probably do one more question, one or two maybe. We've got about six or seven minutes left. Really good one here. What are strategies you use to interact with other women who aren't your wife in healthy and appropriate ways? Yeah, so this is an area that, that I really had to work on because, you know, I had crossed the flesh barrier. So it wasn't just about pornography with me. I mean, I had seduced and been sexual with a lot of women. And so it took me a long time to be able to, to see women as just women. 
And what I mean by that is I had so spent so much of my life through a pornographic grid looking at women as targets rather than seeing them as a sister made in the image of God. And so the struggle I had in, for a long time was because I was struggling with being able to just see women as sisters made in the image of God rather than targets, I really struggled with what I said earlier about uh, temptation not being sin. And I felt like, man, if I have any temptation here, then, oh, I failed. See, because, I mean, I had temptation when I saw that woman. And, and I finally had some wise guys get around me, and they said, okay, so let's unpack this. So you saw that woman. Um, did you flirt with her? No. Okay, well, did you act out later with her in fantasy? No. And they started going on. They are like, okay, chill out, man. You didn't cross the line. And so I started to kind of have, that was one area, just stop hyperventilating, thinking that every woman is a target. The other thing, too, is what I just mentioned, reframing their value. When you begin to actually tell yourself, and I think it's good for you to actually say some things out loud when you're by yourself, when, when you're really trying to kind of reshape your thinking in this area. And if you can start to say, women are a valuable treasure of the king, or women are priceless daughters of God. You can start saying things like that. Women are my sisters, and we stand before the holy God equally valuable. When you can just start to say those kind of things, to be able to say, so the next time I see a woman, I'm going to see her through that grid. I'm going to see her through the grid of being made in the image of God. And therefore, she is not a target for my use. She's a daughter of the king. She's a priceless treasure of a holy God. And so when you can start doing that, that helps a lot. Um, and so the other thing too is then I think you do need, just need to have, create your own personal parameters for what you will and will not do when it comes to other women. We call these, actually in our, in our ministry, we have what we call our standards for irreproachable conduct. And one of those is, hey, listen, I have, I only have two other guys, actually, I guess we have three other guys besides me that are men on our staff, and there's four other women that are on staff with us. And so whenever we have an event, we do not travel alone in a car with another woman who's not our wife. I mean, just those types of things. We're not, we, we have windows on all of our doors in our office so that if a door is shut, there's a window there. So we, we don't put ourselves in compromising situations. So the thing is that you have to think about it when Ephesians 5, 3 says, let there not even be a hint of sexual immor immorality among God's people. What's that going to look like in your life? Uh, the other thing too is I just, um, as a married man, this is one of the ways that I deal with it is when I, my wife and I got back together, I realized that this issue of marriage and oneness has real implications for even when my wife is not physically present with me. Because see, guys, I'm standing right here. My wife is physically downstairs somewhere, but she's actually right here. Because we're one. So wherever I go, she is with me. And wherever she goes, I'm with her. And because we've built that oneness and we have that understanding, when I'm traveling and I'm checking in at a hotel and there's a cute receptionist that is actually checking me in, I'm sitting there thinking, my wife is standing right here with me. Do you know how my vocabulary and my language and my conversation changes? Because I know she's here with me. Now, some of you guys are going, I'm single. I don't have a wife. I guess I'm going to have to flirt with that hotel, you know, checking. Like, No, no, no. Guess who's with you always to the end of the age? Jesus Christ is right there. 
And you know what he calls us? He calls us his bride. So the, the, the fact of the matter is that if you're a Christian, you're married to Jesus. So even if you're single in terms of you don't have a wife in the physical, you have a marriage in the spiritual. And so everywhere you go, he's with you. And let's hope that that has more of an influence on changing our thoughts and our behaviors and our language than even just knowing that I'm married and my wife is here with me. So one more question and then we'll, we'll break. So before I ask it, can I just ask you, there are a lot of these questions have been really personal and unique to situations people are going through. Is there a way that you're able to maybe text or email them back after today? I don't want to put you on the spot, but just so they wonder if, if the so, question doesn't get answered. So yeah, this is an event only text thing, but here's what I would encourage you to do. If you will swing by our Be Broken booth downstairs and grab one of my cards uh, or one of our ministry brochures, you can shoot me an email directly. That's actually got my email address on the card there. And so that'll be private. It doesn't go to anybody else. It's not like it goes to a main box and then comes to me. It comes straight to me. So if you've got some more personal things that you would like to, to share with me or just any other questions that come up or you just want to connect with our resources, please swing by there and get some cards. All right, last question. You've mentioned our need to die to ourselves. I hear that a lot. I don't know where it is, particularly in Scripture. What do you mean by that phrase, dying to yourself? Okay, so yeah, we're, uh, when you look at Romans 12, 1, and that we're to be, uh, offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to the Lord, that's the idea of dying to yourself. That's one area that you can find it. I love that J. Vernon McGee used to say the problem with a living sacrifice is it likes to crawl off the altar. So this is why it's a daily thing. The idea of dying to ourselves is at whatever point I am seeking to live, think, or behave independently of how God has actually made me to live, that's what I have to die to. I have to die to that. So if I'm saying, God, I want to do something with that image that I just saw. And I want to use the mind that you gave me. I want to use the imagination and creativity that you gave me in order to make that moment and that image all about me. I have to die to that. And that's why I think that kind of language is used, is this is not something that we can sort of just toy around with and say, well, I'll get to it when I feel like it. No, it's like pull out the axe. We have to crucify that. That's why I think the imagery in the Old Testament was so severe against sin, because God takes sin seriously. And you know why he takes sin seriously? Because he loves us deeply. And the thing that separated us from him was sin, and he wants to kill it. And so we have to take that same mindset on of, do I take the sin and the possibility of sin in my life to the same degree of seriousness that God does? Because if I don't, then I'm probably going to drift away. I'm going to start to think that I'm my own little God, be my own autonomous creature, and we've got to get away from that. So I think the idea of dying to self is, hey, at whatever point I'm in disagreement with God and I want to make it about me and do it my way, that's what has to die. And I have to say, I'm going to submit, submit and surrender to what, what you say. Well, listeners, I hope that you gained a lot of insights and that there were some things that were helpful from that Q&A session. You know, if you have even further questions, if there's other things that you're uh, wondering about that were not covered in this Q&A session, please reach out to us. 
Uh, you can contact us on uh, our puresexradio.com website, or you can even tweet at us at puresexradio on Twitter. We'd love to try to field any more questions that you might have and get you the help that you need. We're glad that you've been with us, and we look forward to having you back here again next time on the Pure Sex Radio broadcast. Take care. Pure Sex Radio is paid for by Be Broken Ministries. Visit us online at puresexradio.com.